The missions were amazing. So the whole first week we did B-52s as they flew into Diego Garcia and then bombed Taliban targets in Afghanistan. The second week we did B-1s and the third week we did B-2s. Uh, and to be uh, what's called the air bridge of getting all of those bomber assets to the Pacific was the most rewarding combat experience of my life. Good afternoon and welcome to the Players Hall Podcast. My name is C1C Jack Wachtel, here with my NCO C2C Maya Mandiem. And our special guest with us today, Dr. Thomas Torkelson. Doctor, sir, right? Yeah. I got that right? Uh, That's true. <laughs> uh, he's the Deputy Director for the Center for Character and Leadership Development, CCLD. Um, welcome to the show, sir. Thank you very much. An honor to be asked. So just to get us started out, could you give us a quick elevator pitch of how you got to where you are today? Sure. Uh, I'm a 92 graduate of this amazing institution. Uh, I flew primarily KC-135s during my career. I had a C-21 tour as well. This will probably come up later in the interview, but the front half of my career was honestly kind of mediocre and average. But thankfully, I kind of got a clue and figured out what serving our nation was really about. Uh, And then my career kind of took a positive change. I was able to go to weapons school as a tanker officer, weapons officer. Uh, That led to some, I guess, opportunities for school and staff and things like that. I got to command twice uh, at the 351st Air Refueling Squadron at RAF Mildenhall, and then three years later as the 100th Air Refueling Wing Commander at RAF Mildenhall. Um, I got to work for General Welsh for a year. I retired as an 06, teaching at the Military and Strategic Studies Department here. General Clark was my boss in uh, Europe and helped me end my career here uh, by design. I was able to get that PhD done right at the nick of time, right before I retired. Uh, and then I took about two years off to figure out what I want to do with the second half of my life. Honestly, didn't know a lot about CCLD. Uh, I found when I taught air power, it was kind of an excuse to talk about character and leadership things anyway. Uh, and so I applied to a whole bunch of jobs at CCLD that I didn't get. And then I finally got hired for the deputy director position. Uh, and it's been awesome. I feel like it's a perfect uh, position for what I have learned and how my life has changed uh, throughout my career. And we actually met probably about half a year ago. Uh, it was in Polaris. It was in the Wing Honor Boardroom, and you came in with the Undersecretary of... Remember when you walked through the room, it was with the Commandant and then the Undersecretary of the Air Force? Yeah, I, I honestly don't remember who the DV was, so <laughs> I can't... We have a lot of visitors here. Uh, Polaris Hall hosts about 800 uh, tours like that a year. But I remember meeting you, and I remember... Uh, you know, you given an honor pitch to that group, and General Mogo was there commenting on the fact that you were in CS14, which in <laughs> fact you weren't. Uh, and so you confessed right there that you hadn't updated your A jacket. And I was like, nice job, Jack. You had a great brief. Uh, but you could have, you know, said something else. But you took it like a man. You said, I'll fix my jacket. Uh, and you did. So that's what I remember about it. Yes, yeah, so that's just a funny story about how I met you. It was just in the wing honor boardroom. And I didn't update my A jacket patch, and I got it. I got it done the next day, though. Yeah, I believe you. <laughs> but any, uh, getting back to your career, so when do you think that change, like, switched between like the early part of your career when you didn't really know, or didn't really think you had any guidance, or might have had misaligned guidance? Yeah, this could be a really long answer. So okay. <laughs> this might be the whole rest of the interview because. Uh, I alluded to, you know, my selfishness and, and all of that. I, I just came here for the wrong reasons, I think. 
Um, I came really because it looked good on your resume, parents and friends and teachers all acted like this was a really sweet trophy. Uh, so I followed that almost out of expectation. And things kind of came easy for me. Uh, I was kind of arrogant and a know-it-all when I was a cadet. Um, I finished really high in a big you know, high school in Virginia Beach, which is a military town. I don't know. I was cocky and selfish. Uh, and even after I graduated and was a junior officer, I kind of lived that way. I felt like I was good in the jet. I was a good pilot. I was credible, respected. But there was this air of it's all about me. Um, that led to kind of a lifestyle of uh, living two lives. Uh, I'll be frank. I had an on-duty persona and presence. Uh, and then I had an off-duty uh, life that was different. Uh, I kind of hung up the uniform and when I wasn't wearing it, uh, I was no longer an airman. And so even from high school, you know, it started with, you know, drinking and partying, that kind of lifestyle. Uh, I told you I graduated 92. So I graduated from UPT uh, in September of 93. And it still wasn't like old school fighter pilot, you know, get drunk at the bar. And it wasn't that extreme. But that lifestyle was much more than it is now. Um, and I think we've made a lot of positive changes. Anyway, I loved that kind of lifestyle and I, I lived it, especially off duty. And it got to a point where I didn't really know who I was. Um, all these negative indicators began to pile up, even though my record, as a junior officer, I thought my record was good. But uh, like I said, I got to be a wing commander and I've looked at hundreds of records uh, since then. And my, like I said, early record was pretty, pretty average, but I didn't know that at the time. It was, I'm doing great. But all these negative indicators kept piling up in my life uh, that I didn't like. Uh, and it finally got to a point where the common variable was alcohol. And it took me a long time to figure that out. And so uh, despite my arrogance and selfishness when I drank, it was even worse. You know, it was, it was like an exponential increase. And so there were many events during my life. You know, one question that we talked about in advance was, is there something that you regret, some decision that you wish you had done differently? There's a long list of those that mostly were alcohol related. Um, and I won't go into specifics on all of that. And I know lots of stories like mine where any one of those should have been the turning point. <laughs> any, any one of those should have been, oh, what am I doing in my life? I should turn the corner. I don't, I don't know why it took so long. Uh, my mom passed away from cancer as well. That's kind of a mixed message story. Um, it was my second assignment. And so I had just done my first tour at Kadena. Uh, got a humanitarian reassignment to Virginia Beach area. I went to Langley and flew the C-21, not something I ever wanted to do. But the Air Force gave me that reassignment. My wife's a 93 grad. I should have mentioned that earlier. She uh, was able to get reassigned as well. Um, and so that was a huge gift of the Air Force to my family to help me be with my mom when she was passing away. But uh, she ended up not surviving the cancer. Uh, she was a very devout Christian, very devout woman of faith. Uh, I went to church growing up. I claimed, you know, that faith as well, but wasn't walking it, you know, didn't have any kind of spirituality in my life. Uh, when she passed away, I kind of went off the rails. Uh, it was a really depressive state for me. Uh, I was still going to work. I was still flying the jet. Uh, and I probably didn't know in the moment how broken I was. But uh, the drinking got really bad. My marriage almost ended. Uh, went to another assignment even, started having kids, uh, and I had, the, the big change happened uh, when I was at weapons school, and uh, I had a big night in Las Vegas of all places, Nellis Air Force Base, 
what stays in Sin City, you know, what happens in Sin City stays in Sin City. Uh, and so, again, I had prior events that were worse than this one, but I had an event that I'm ashamed of and uh, fearful of at the moment. And uh, I got back to my apartment, slept it off, woke up hungover, looked in the mirror and said, I, I don't know who you are. Uh, who do you want to be? Uh, and so I went to church that next day on base at Nellis. And like I said, I wasn't really church going at the time, sitting in the back row, not sure what I'm supposed to do next. Uh, and the preacher came up to preach and said, I was supposed to preach about something else today, but God kept me up all night because I was supposed to talk about my struggles with alcohol. There's somebody in the congregation that's supposed to hear it. And so when I heard that, I felt like I was getting a message from above. <laughs> uh, the whole room kind of emptied in my mind. And I just felt like I had hope. Uh, and it was the first time I felt like I had a lifeline to get out. And so I called my wife. Uh, she was at Fairchild Air Force Base while I was at Nellis. She started crying on the phone, uh, said, I've been waiting for this day. She loved sober me, but didn't really like drunk me, of course, but stayed uh, waiting for me to see the light. Uh, I told my fellow students at Weapons School that this happened. Uh, they were accepting. I was worried about being ridiculed and social stigma and things like that, but they were, they were cool about it. Um, one last part of the story is that was at the beginning of Weapons School. Weapons School is six months of hard work. It's, it's a play hard, party hard kind of environment. Um, but you get a patch at the end and join this long line of weapons officers. And patch night is kind of a controlled fun fest. And so I fully intended to drink that night. I couldn't get in trouble. Everything was going to be cool. And my friends wouldn't let me. They were like, don't break the streak. Don't break the streak. You've been doing great. Uh, and I was mad. I was like, come on, you know, let's, it's patch night. Let's do our thing. And they're like, we'll drink at the hotel. We'll drink at the hotel. I'm like, okay. And so I waited, you know, reluctantly. We got on a bus from Nellis down to, I think, the Flamingo. Uh, if you have been to Vegas, Flamingo was cool back in the 90s. But uh, actually, this was 2004. Take it back. We get there, and I see my wife in a gown uh, in the lobby, and they had arranged for her to fly from Fairchild to meet us there, which I didn't know. And then I was like, ah, it all makes sense. And then I was getting off the bus. They start to clap. Oh, I will never forget it. And that was a moment where I felt like I now have a new identity. I have a new me. I am credible. I just graduated from weapons school. I was six months sober with all these people that I wanted to impress. And I don't know. I wanted them to look up to me in some way, and they did without drinking. It was an awesome kind of get me over the threshold. And I can't say life was, you know, rainbows and lollipops after that. I had to repair my marriage. It took a long time to change my reputation. But my whole career changed at that point. I became fully committed. Uh, I was kind of playing both sides. When I teach and talk to cadets, you don't know how long you're going to serve. You know, you signed up, you're like, I don't know how long I'm going to serve. Some people, I'm going to serve till 20, I'm 25, I'm all, you might be, great. But most of us are like, I don't know, <laughs> I'm just going to go along a little bit. And so that whole front half of my career was indecision. Yeah, I like what I do, but I don't know how long I'm going to stay. But I don't know, once I became whole, and that's a point I want to make too, we talk about integrity as doing the right thing when nobody's watching. Um, and that's not wrong. It's about honesty and all of that. But I've learned that integrity and integer have the same Latin root. And integer, of course, means one, and it really means whole. Oh. And so for me, uh, when I became whole, uh, I now understood what it meant to have a life of integrity. I'm one person, 24-7, in uniform, out. I became fully committed, and my whole career changed. My paperwork got great. Uh, my assignments got great. I mean, 
So if you can figure out you, you know, be the whole you earlier in your life, <laughs> I don't know, you're, it's limitless where you can go. I, I limited my, what I could do because I spent 10, 12 years living selfishly and not knowing what I was about. And I wish I could figure that out earlier. I feel like there's some lost years. Yeah, I mean, making that switch from even just the high school to coming to USAF is so hard for cadets. Even if they won't admit it, they're like, oh, like it's like I'm kind of in the group, like I'm in the swing of things, but like the sort of revelation that you had after 12 years, you know, where you had to come to terms with yourself, it's so hard uh, to kind of impose that on like a cadet scale just because it's just like, how do you give like give people lessons to learn like learn from? Yeah. At this at, at this young of age, like straight out of high school, some people are like eighteen. I was eighteen. Yeah, I think if I can jump on that, I feel like I expected a high school like experience when I got here because I don't know anything different. Mm-hmm. I'm here at the academy. They shave my head. I'm wearing a uniform, but I don't know what's different. You know, I know me. I know I like to drink. I know I like. Ladies, I like to have more fun than work, uh, and I would find people like that. There's there's plenty of people at the academy that join that way, um, and you can stay there and not grow and not really get what this place is trying to weave into you, um, which speaks to leader of character ideas, honor code, all of that. The character piece is what is so important. Um, you're going to be great pilots, you're going to be great space operators, and be great intel officers, whatever you're going to do, that part's kind of easy. But what kind of human will you be uh, when the chips are down, your mom dies, your significant other leaves you, you don't get the job you wanted, uh, you don't get promoted. There's a lot of dark spots that await mm, combat, uh, loss. Uh, and without that strong character foundation, you're going to find yourself like me, a little lost, a little confused. Uh, this isn't exactly the dream that I was expecting. You got to get the why am I doing this here, or at least as soon as you can after you graduate. Yeah, in conversation I had last semester, uh, one of the quotes that they used was, "I might be muddling a little bit, but it's your values and your character are kind of what help you make those tough decisions in hard situations." And yeah. So if you get to that sort of, you know that sort of fork in the road or like some, some, something external happens that kind of makes you like that shakes you as a person. If you don't have that sort of character and values built into you before, like what do you, what else do you have to fall back on your friends that you surrounded yourself with that have the same values that you kind of wanted out of your experience? You know, like what, what sort of support structure or system do you have to keep yourself in line? Yeah. Amen. I think it's important. I think it's good to hang out with people who help you raise your game. I don't know. You can call them peer mentors. I don't know. It's hard to describe. You know what I'm talking about. It's like there's people that you know that you may not even be friends with yet, but they kind of inspire you. You're like, man, I want to be like that in some way, shape, or form. Uh, those are good people to hang out with. I hung out with people kind of like me. <laughs> and we, I don't know, I fell back on the bottle. I fell back on lost, selfish living. Uh, anyway, I was blessed to have an amazing bride, too. I want to highlight her, too. You know, when I was here, Falcon Love was kind of uncool, and I've talked to y'all, and I heard that's not true anymore. It's just like, yeah, you're dating a cadet, no big deal. The women population has, like, doubled since my wife was here, so there's more of you, Maya. Um, But anyway, she has been an amazing partner for me through the darkness and the junk, uh, and our marriage can be better. We've been married 29 years. We married, I think, two days after she graduated in the chapel. So sorry y'all can't really enjoy the chapel while you're here, but it's a special place where our family kind of started. 
uh, and now on the side, we're like marriage mentors uh, at our church and, and do that too. So I don't know, even our junk can be redeemed. That's a good message too. Yeah, that's awesome. So I did a little digging and I found out an article about how you had a part in the response to 9-11. Can you talk about that a little and how that shaped kind of what you do now? Yeah, that's a great question because uh, you all are in kind of a different inflection point too, right? 9-11 kind of started this 20 plus year of counterinsurgency, Iraq, Afghanistan, a different and longer than we all expected kind of fight. And that's kind of ending now. And I know in MSS, I teach Core 251 this semester. We're already shifting back to strategic competition and China-Russia focus. And so back then, uh, I graduated in 92, UPT 93. I went to Kadena. I did operational assignment there uh, in the 135 where we were all kind of North Korea and China focused. Uh, I talked about the C-21 tour, which was a diversion from, I would say, combat Air Force. Went back to Kadena, my next tour, uh, and this is when 9-11 happened. And so I was excited to go back because I felt like my first assignment was abbreviated due to my mom getting sick. And so I was... And I was worried that Korea would happen while I was gone. When we were there, we were so ready. Our motto was like, fight tonight. Uh, we got to get to the southern peninsula of uh, Korea to do our thing. I was like, man, I don't want to miss that. Man, I don't want to miss that. And so I was able to go back to Kadena, and then 9-11 happened, which is a completely different kind of future that I thought I might experience there. Because I was overseas, everything that happened on the East Coast was, was about 8 and 9 in the morning. Uh, we were at Guam. And so it was evening, you know, I can't remember the time conversion, but 11, 12 at night. Uh, this was back in my drinking days. And so we were all out at bars and things like that. And I was going back to the hotel when uh, leadership from our squadron said, hey, something big's going down. We're all in crew rest. Go find everybody. So I turned back around and scooped everybody up. Uh, and we watched 9-11 on our TVs in that hotel in Guam. Uh, we were in crew rest for about three weeks um, which is lengthy you know that, that's an unusual amount of time to not fly uh, but be ready to fly and we were in, and we were in Guam because there was a typhoon evacuation that, that's why we weren't at Kadena so we flew back to Kadena uh, and we were in crew rest for about three weeks uh, and then we all deployed to Thailand a place called Utapau which is on Pattaya Beach on the south side and normally we would go there for a peacetime exercise and we'd stay like in the Hard Rock Hotel something like that, but now it's kind of work time and we stayed on uh, Thai Marine Barracks, which was very austere. We had no hot water, uh, we had no uh, screens on our windows, we had some window holes, you know, but no windows. Uh, it was weird, I don't know, it was like the roughest I had been in it, I don't know, it wasn't combat, it wasn't foxholes in the desert, but it was rough <laughs> tanker guys who are used to being at the Hard Rock. Uh, anyway, so that was an adjustment, uh, but the missions were amazing. So the whole first week, we did B-52s as they flew into Diego Garcia and then bombed Taliban targets in Afghanistan. The second week, we did B-1s, and the third week, we did B-2s. Uh, and to be uh, what's called the air bridge of getting all of those bomber assets to the Pacific was the most rewarding combat experience of my life at that time. And if I had more minutes to think about it, I could think of some pretty amazing uh, high-intensity sorties over Iraq and Afghanistan too, but those were sorties, and this was weeks of purposeful flying. Anyway, uh, it made us understand that the world is different, we're going to fight differently, we're going to have a different enemy, uh, and we quit thinking about, at least I did, China and Russia as much, uh, North Korea, and started focusing on coin things. So 
I don't know. It, it made me feel like my graduation and my pilot wings and my service meant something, maybe for the first time. One really quick story about that, too. My wife was pregnant with our second child uh, right during that. And another good thing about the service we're all a part of, they let me leave that deployment about, I don't know, three weeks early so I could get home and be there for the birth of my second son, who's now 20 and a sophomore at University of Wyoming. So. Just another stressor amidst this chaotic Thailand experience, huh? Yeah, and in a, a non-connectivity environment, this is a day where we were sharing like a sat phone, and so it'd be like, hey, Jack, it, it, it's your turn to call home. And, oh, really? And you'd, you'd talk for like five minutes on the sat phone, and so there was no cell phones, no email, nothing. It was a different kind of connectivity. Didn't you have to take different routes to... I think I thought I read somewhere that you had to take like alternate routes to the actual airstrip or the airfield like on your way to... Like when you're in Thailand, or was that? Yeah, it's, I think I know what you're getting at. So politically, Thailand didn't support uh, kinetic action. I remember this really good political cartoon from when we were there. It was in a local Thai newspaper, uh, and there was a, uh, a cartoon of Pinocchio, and Pinocchio's nose was really long, and it was a runway, uh, <laughs> and tankers were taken off of it. And the caption in Thai was something like, the Americans aren't here, you know? <laughs> And so because of the political part of it, yeah, we had to pretend like we weren't there. And so we would come back to the runway different ways, but we're not stealthy. It's a big four-engine jet. We thought that was kind of funny. Everyone knew we were there. So how did you deal with kind of all these different stressors, like having to be in a more austere environment, also having your wife be pregnant back home, but also completing the demands of the mission? Well, like I said, it was back in my drinking days, so I probably didn't totally do that well. I honestly didn't feel super stressed then. Uh, it was, we couldn't drink very much either, but we had like a two drink maximum rule and sneaky me, again, kind of back to the honor code mentality. It's a checklist. As long as I comply with the checklist, I'm good. Uh, we found beers that were like massive and so we had like these you know mini keg beers uh and so we would drink two of those and feel like we weren't cheating uh that helped uh in a negative way but this is a really dumb story uh i don't know if you've heard of risk 2210 it's one of these risk variations and it's future risk obviously it's year 2210 uh and a dude i flew with andy selberg god bless his soul brought this brand new risk game and we played risk so when we were in crew rest and it was so sought after and so competitive if you won the game uh you got to stay on the board and then everybody else shuffled out and kind of like hey it's your turn on the phone it'd be like hey risk is over risk is over you're up yeah and we would you know i'm talking two in the morning four in the morning it didn't matter you know it was your time to play and that's one of my favorite games of this day because of the camaraderie and that was good healthy stress relief um and crew rest and i i love those memories yeah it was good what's really interesting is just kind of thousand thousand foot view from your story and your development, and then you kind of turn to that page. It really makes me think about how like now that okay. So to our viewers, just a little bit of background. Honor and uh, so Yusuf's honor code and honor staff, and then Yusuf's character staff have combined uh, recently. And well, this this semester is the start of it. So instead of wing honor education like we were last year, now we're wing honor character. Wait, we're wing. Character and honor development. See, we're, we're still even trying to get the, the names down. But anyways, so looking at not just the honor code, but the leadership of character framework, 
like the the code here at USAFA, and as a lot of our grads know, is just the bare minimum, right? It's just kind of what you need to do to get by you, or what you need to not do to get by. Right. right? And so when I think about your develop, like your years before you had that turn the page moment, you're kind of almost meeting those, that sort of... Checking the box. Checking the box, yep. right? And then afterwards, when you had that moment after weapons school and you started your streak of sobriety and started developing you know, meaningful relation, very meaningful relationships uh, with people who wanted the best in you, you started to build up from that minimum. Absolutely. But you needed the foundation first, right? You needed to get that foundation before you could start getting aspirational. I think. Yeah, I agree. And CCLD didn't exist when I was here. Uh, and I know that the Academy tried to do character development. I'm not saying there was none of it before CCLD. But the reason Polaris was built, the reason CCLD was funded and created was we need to do a better job. And it was created in 93. That, that's a long time ago. <laughs> that's a long time ago. Uh, and we made a lot of progress. But uh, I totally agree with how you set that up. Um, the, the code's the minimum, and it's not good enough. Uh, and if we're walking around looking over our shoulder uh, to make sure no one sees these other things that I'm doing, uh, we're not in the right heart posture. We're not in the right condition to serve, in my opinion. You're not ready. Um, and what I love about the framework, uh, living honorably, lifting others, and elevating performance, is really the bumper sticker. I think most people know the pillars, but there's a lot of detail underneath those as to what it means to live honorably. Uh, and one piece that I really like is ownership and understanding your identity. I love it because it resonates with my own journey. And I want to say, I don't have any statistics, I have no clue, but I would think more than half of you cadets don't really know the whole you yet. I think that's kind of a normal part of life. It's You're at the age where some of you are going to get it here, some of you are going to get it younger, and others like me take, just take longer. Um, so... What I would love and what I hope CCLD can continue to do is to merge the character and honor conversation to where they are understandable. I was sharing before we started that uh, when I hear cadets talk about honor, it's all about process. It's, it's almost like I'm in a courtroom. It's all, it's all these law things. Uh, and that's not the point. Uh, the, the point is, what does it mean to live honorably? What does it mean to help somebody when they're down? You know, all, all those weapons school wugs, they're called. My fellow student is called a wug. They lifted me up. Uh, they could have ridiculed me. They could have teased me. Uh, they didn't. They said, you know what? This dude wants to. And we didn't know each other well. My weapons school was January to June. Uh, and my literal come to Jesus moment was uh, 11 January 2004. So I, I had only known them up a week or 10 days. These weren't lifelong friends. These were just majors and captains who signed up for weapons school. Uh, and so they lifted me up uh, to help me to be that best possible self uh, right when I needed it. Um, anyway, those kinds of conversations, the removing the fear of watching somebody make a moral lapse, and like if I see you cheat, or if I see you say a little white lie, we should be able to say, hey, we, we don't do that. And, and there shouldn't be any fear of that person getting booted or you getting booted by acknowledging that it happened. It should be an encouraging, uplifting conversation. And I hope we can get to that point where the code is no longer something we fear and walk on eggshells around. It's an afterthought. It's like, of course I don't lie, steal, or cheat. And oh, by the way, I live honorably in all these other ways. And oh, by the way, I'm helping you guys along the way. And when we're better and whole, all of our performance goes through the roof. I mean, I don't know. I've never felt lighter, free. Um, I don't know. Sometimes 
the academy, living a certain way can be burdened. And if you're living well and honorably, it is light and free and fun. And that's the life we're supposed to lead. So. Yeah, I almost think it, like a lot of the culture around the code and how people see like the process and all that stuff is almost unique to like the last probably 20 years just because like whenever a SPI talks to us, they have so much passion and and love for like their the code when they were a cadet and it continued on throughout their you know entire service. So it's just interesting to me to see like, yeah, we had CCLD introduced in 1993, and like, and since then it's just it kind of almost seems like there's a like the separation kind of occurred between honor and then the character development piece like we were just saying earlier. Um, how do you how do you want this sort of combination to actually come into practice in the cadet wing? How do you see that kind of come into fruition? Yeah, before I answer that, and if I don't get to it, ask it again. Uh, I, I don't remember the year when this might have happened, but you're referenced to like older grads, and there's even grads older than the Spies that uh, you're referring to, that all of this aspirational language that I'm talking about was associated with the code. And I think mm-hmm. the culture was kind of what I was describing. It was, we're cadets, we don't, we don't do that. Uh, and there was a little more of a non-developmental aspect. If, if you violated the code, you were gone. You know, attrition was much higher than... Uh, I'm definitely on the development side. I don't want to get to a place where you break the code, you're gone. Um, Because we all make mistakes. We all can be redeemed. There's so many chiefs, colonels, generals that had some major behavioral lapse that was their turning moment and made them great leaders. So I'm all about the development side. But I've heard uh, and read histories that there there did come a point when the code became really lawyer infested, you know, congressional complaints, my child was, you know, removed, uh, why did that happen? And so we became very meticulous and careful on how the process goes. And I think that kind of hijacked the honorable conversation. Um, and I don't think CCLD was necessarily created because of that. It wasn't like, uh, we're broke, uh, we need some new thing to fix it. I, I don't think it was that. I think it was more uh, graduates who are well-intentioned and donated tons of money to build Polaris Hall, $21.5 million, if you didn't know that. Uh, we get gift money uh, fairly easily to do character development kinds of things. They, they just love you as the future of the defense of our nation uh, and wanted to accelerate, enhance, make the character development piece bigger than the honor code. So I, I don't think it was a, as a result of being broken or, or something like that. But we're here, you know, time has passed, scandals have happened, lawyers are involved. Uh, There's often a lot of turnover with the permanent party honor staff, and it's a cadet-run program, but sometimes we're not giving you the best guidance, the best uh, continuity is probably a better way to say it. Um, And so CCLD can really help with that strengthening of the program and aligning of the language. the character and leadership lessons, uh, as I understand it, the only honor lessons that exist now that are called honor lessons are in basic training. Uh, that's fine. I'm not saying that that needs to change, but all of those M5s, AOC, AMT, mm, that are supposed to be character and leadership development, if any of them have to do with honor or character or leader of character pillars, they should be aligned. Uh, and that's what I would love to see. And I would love to see cadets leading those discussions. There's a concern that because their graduation requirements, only qualified people can teach some of those, but I hope we can get to a point where we've trained you to teach it and the qualified persons 
watching, you know, facilitating. Mm. You know, we do tons of self-taught lessons in the classroom in the faculty department already. I'm sure you all have done it already. So anyway. So how, what ideas do you have for how we get cadets to really buy into these lessons? Because I think it's, it's definitely hard when cadets are just getting PowerPoints and they know it's a graduation requirement um, to really take this to heart. I would advise why would you think it's not for you? Um, part of the ownership piece in the framework is an understanding that I have room to grow. And so I remember arrogant, know-it-all me, and I didn't feel like I had a lot of room to grow. Uh, and so that could be true for many of you that maybe you feel like you know, your character is good or I'm, I'm fine. There, there's nothing here that I can need or uh, receive. And so I would just offer as a posture of humility, we all have room to grow. Um, and even on the intellectual side, you know, like I said, I was a really smart guy. I got really good grades. The older I got and the more schools I went through, I realized how little I know and how dumb I am. So remove character, just pure smartness or, or whatever. You're not as smart as you think you are, <laughs> uh, but you're really smart. Uh, and on the character side, even more, we all, we all have room to grow. Um, and so I guess... Ask those kinds of hard questions to whoever's facilitating, whoever's leading. How did these character conversations impact you as an officer? I would, I'm sure they can answer those. What were some of those tough, morally ambiguous situations? A lot of them, there's not a right answer. That's what I love too. Same situation, same context. What would you do, Maya? I, I would do this. What would you do, Jack? I would do something else. And there's a good conversation there that probably both of those are okay. Um, but why? Uh, I don't know. That's what leadership is, and that's what we're openly training you to do. Sir, what you said just reminded me. I just had a conversation with a professor who said getting a PhD is like learning and learning and learning until you realize you don't know anything. Amen. Yeah, I love that. I would totally agree. I had a, uh, one of my dissertation advisors draw a big circle on the board, uh, and that was the body of knowledge, you know, humanities knowledge. And then you do this little dot right on the edge and said that's your contribution to it so, so don't go overboard on your dissertation try to write something new and interesting but it's all this and you're just adding one little speck so yeah we have we all that's why we need our team that's why we need to be diverse that's why we all look when we join and talk and contribute the solutions better kind of going back to your career and within the air force what at what level do you think like what job or assignment do you think you had the best sort of support around you and, and like-minded individuals who wanted to get something like accomplished or like best group of people working together? Because I, I see this, there's so many different levels, like weapons school you're with. How many of you guys? Maybe. Uh, well, weapons school is really about integration now. So it started as fighter weapons school. It's mm -hmm. like Air Force's Top Gun equivalent. And it was just tactics and combat and air-to-air. -air. But now it's there's a missile school uh, P-52, um, Case 135, and we all meet at Nellis and integrate. And so that, my class was technically only six students, but that tanker class joined dozens of others to do what's called a mission employment exercise, which is a huge mini war with every kind of Air Force function there is, and we learn what we bring to the fight. So, so like from that small group to, I mean, you were a wing commander. Yeah. So you have different sort of echelons of amount of people that are working with you or like mentors at different levels. Where do you where did you find like the most success in kind of finding that sort of group or mentor? Yeah, that's a hard question because I could make a great positive 
claim for many assignments and many different levels. Uh, so one way I want to answer it is I think you can experience that at every assignment with with every peer group. If you seek it out, you, you might be a lieutenant or a captain in a circle where you don't feel like it's there. It might, it might not feel that way, but it's on the base. It might even be in your unit. It's there uh, if you seek it. And that's, again, back to that seek people who kind of raise your game. People speak differently. They they, they have a different air about them when they're in, all in, uh, and excited to serve. And I'm not saying they're excelling to look good on paper or they're looking for a bullet for an awards package. You know what I'm talking about. They, they just carry themselves in a credible way. They're, they're everywhere, <laughs> at every base uh, and every squadron. We have a really deep bench. But if you really want me to answer one, I'm going to claim my squadron commander tour and our front office team, which evolved, you know, there's many airmen that came in and out of that. I think we did a good job creating a culture of kind of like leader of character concepts. I didn't know what those terms were then. And when I came back to the academy right at the end of my career and drove in, we're developing leaders of character. And I started, I was like, oh, these are the words that I needed, you know, back when I was trying to lead this way uh, at the 351st. But Without using academy kind of words, I think we did a good job building a culture of that. Um, and so one of the best you know, examples of did you make a difference, what lasted during your time there, is if something continues after you're long gone, it's probably a good thing. You have enough cadet jobs, you know, your, your job duration is like six months or something, and it's just changing all the time. A new person comes in, new ideas, new vision, all of that. And so one really minor example is uh, heritage is a great thing. I'm going to tie this to heritage. So I, ha I have a spiritual part of my story, which inspires me and gets me out of bed and makes me look forward to each new day. And I know there's a lot of people that aren't faith-based, which is fine. So if you don't have that, heritage is a really good thing to fire you up. You know, learn about Cy John, learn about, you know, Robbie Reiser, learn about our people. Anyway, we learned that our squadron is a descendant of the Bloody 100th back in World War II, the 100th bomb group who flew B-17s. I'm not going to get into detail there, but there's so many great rich stories of heroism and sacrifice. Our squadron learned that we were a part of that in our lineage. And so we found this poem that's like Ode to the Bloody Hundredth. We made a ceremony in our heritage room to when you became mission ready in the jet. We would read this poem. We would toast the Bloody Hundredth. And you got a 351st bomb squadron patch to wear on Fridays, even though we were a tanker squadron. It was really cool. Uh, and so I leave, you know. It's still going on. I came back years later. There's been like, I don't know, 10 different squadron commanders now. Do you guys still do the, the Bloody Hunter? Oh, yeah, it's great. They've renamed the bar. You know, every everything is all about the Bloody Hunter now. And so that's a good, I don't know, validation of the culture we tried to build that's still going on. You talked about how you kind of turned the page in your career. I'm sure after that, it wasn't always easy to kind of stick to that. So can you tell us about a time that maybe it was harder to stay true to your whole self? Yeah, I don't know. It's like when you're trying to change how you behave, it takes a long time to create a new habit, right? Studies show it's like it takes about 40 days. So if you want to exercise better or study better or quit drinking or smoking or whatever, it takes about 40 days for it to even maybe stick. And so uh, I can tell you many times, you know, afterwards where I was tempted to drink, uh, tempted to, you know, misbehave uh, off duty. Um, I don't know. 
it's a, it's a struggle at first, um, but that's why I felt like I needed a savior, that, that this comes back to my faith and belief that I can't do it on my own strength. I needed power from elsewhere. That was supremely helpful. My wife's faithfulness and loyalty. Uh, the more I could let her in, the better. Uh, and it, it took me too long. Uh, I would still kind of privately struggle. Uh, and the longer we've been married, the more she's been my teammate. I'm, I'm like, uh, I'm struggling. And she's like, all right, what, what can we do? You know, I've been trying to teach it to my kids. My kids are all your all's age. You know, I call it living in the light, li live in the light. But to be honest, uh, it wasn't uh, that much of a struggle. You know, I, I, I don't know. I, that it was such a, a life-transforming moment that it was really more of a hunger to make up for lost time. That's not the right way to say it either, but I'm just, I was excited to be free. I was excited to be free uh, and, I don't know, do the things that I should have been doing the whole time. It's, it's just been amazing and fun. So, yeah. It's kind of like discovering like a debt you owe to yourself to and go back to other people and you know, improve and you need to improve on the loss and the on the time that you felt that you were lacking. Yeah, it's almost like I thought alcohol was good and fun and I looked forward to it and I learned it at least for me was an anchor and shackles and I just didn't I don't know it's so much better on the other side of it that's all I can say. Yeah. yeah. Uh, as we wrap up, some rapid fire questions. Favorite bass. <sighs> Kadena slash RAF Mildenhall. <laughs> favorite assignment. Kadena slash RAF Mildenhall. <laughs> All right. Favorite air airframe. KC-135. KC-135. All right. And then can you end us off with a war story? Uh, what kind of war story? Like a combat one or a, I don't know, personal one or... Favorite one to tell. Favorite one to tell. I, I guess I'll choose this one. So, KC 135s in general are often not in harm's way. Um, we are employed in a way that's away from surface tail missile threats. We're a, what they call a high demand, low density asset. So, we don't want to lose any of them and impacts, sortie throughput, all of that. But when the time is right and you know the situation calls for it, there have been crews in the past that have put their tanker probably where they shouldn't have been to refuel, you know, F-16 in need or, or something like that. We had a similar situation over Afghanistan uh, in the weather, which was a little unusual, and at night, which was a little unusual. Um, most of my sorties there were day and clear, and uh, this one was different. Anyway, it was a Dutch uh, F-16 that we were supposed to uh, refuel. And uh, we could tell he was low on fuel, worried about having to bail out, and couldn't find us. Uh, there was a little bit of a language barrier, too. We have avionics and systems that should have made it, you know, we don't need voice. But it got to where we were trying to talk him on. Uh, and he was just, just about uh, to give up when we could see flashes in the clouds and things like that. We had to really talk him onto the boom. I think he was more freaked out than in a dangerous, I can't see things situation. Uh, but he got on, got fuel, uh, and it was intense for us. I don't know. We felt like uh, his life was on the line. We felt, I don't know, I remember being super sweaty and uh, amped up uh, to make sure that we got this done. Uh, and, you know, to make the story a happy ending, he got his gas, went on his way. He wasn't even, he was just trying to land. He was just trying to get home, uh, and he made it. So that's one that I remember. Uh, there's many like it. Uh, yeah. Any parting shots for the cadet wing? 
Uh, I guess don't miss it while you're here. I don't know. When I was here, I didn't have... I, you know, I talked about my drinking days and all that, which implies all I did was have fun and party, but that's not really true either. Uh, I wish I had more fun here. You know, good, clean fun, but uh, I, I work really too hard. Um, and so don't miss each other. Don't miss... Uh, all the opportunities that this place represents, your summer programs, uh, summer research, all of the weird things that aren't in the normal grind that most students don't even get an opportunity to do, jump, soaring, all of that. Do, do as much of it as you can, live life, um, and then anticipate a really sweet career. I don't know, like I said, I didn't know how long I was going to be in. We all think we're going to be in the minimum, but it turned into 26 amazing years. My wife and I had an amazing adventure our marriage is amazing we have four kids uh both grads to be here in this environment it's awesome to be on the outside <laughs> and be with you that are still on the beginning end of it but just enjoy it enjoy it it goes too fast there we have it dr torkelson thank you so much for being on the show absolutely thanks for asking me